This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Okay, what we're going to do tonight is go through the outline, and then at the end of that, we will just uh, have some time for some uh, question and answer. If you have something specifically regarding your family, your children, your, yourself as a parent that you'd like to talk about, we uh, certainly can, uh, can do that. I, I first of all, I just want to start by saying thanks for being here. I, I think your presence here communicates something. Uh, it communicates that you have uh, an interest in the spiritual uh, well-being, state, condition uh, of your children and their relationship with the Lord. That's something that concerned you enough to come out tonight. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your desire to think and pray and learn and engage on this topic. So I really am grateful uh, that you'd be here. And uh, what I want to do is just work through uh, this outline. It's fairly detailed. And then uh, we'll just uh, kick around whatever you would like to kick around following the outline. First thing I want to talk about is childhood conversion. And I want to start with this idea, this truth, that God saves children. God saves children. Many in the room were saved as uh, children. Uh, and God is in the business of reaching children with the gospel. The scripture gives no minimum age for conversion. There's, there's, God can regenerate a very young person at times. It's also true that the scripture reveals that Jesus welcomes children. So not only, they're not an afterthought, uh, it's not the gospel for us, and oh, by the way, the kids as well, when they become an adult, but no, Jesus welcomed children, Jesus has a heart for children, uh, Jesus uh, has a purpose to save uh, children. So at the earliest age, I think it's wise that we be communicating the gospel to our children. Uh, at the very earliest age, we want to be communicating um, the kind of things that we talked about last Sunday, and you can download that message if you weren't here, but uh, we did a message on, from Deuteronomy 6 on evangelizing children. So uh, there was no age attached to that at all, because we trust that God um, will save many children at a young age. On the day of Pentecost, this is what Peter said, Peter declared to the people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter is communicating there that this promise of the Holy Spirit, which is being poured out at that time on the day of Pentecost, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of being a part of the new covenant, the promise of being a son and daughter of God uh, and, uh, is, is for those hearing and for their children as well. Um, I want to I start on this point, and I want us to remember this point. God saves children, and it's intentional that there's a, uh, an exclamation point there uh, on the outline under that sentence, because um, I, I can't minimize, or I can't overstate, to be a better way to say it, I can't overstate my enthusiasm and confidence and belief in that. So please, please hear that, because a lot of tonight's going to have a cautionary tone to it. Um, but the cautionary tone needs to be balanced with the truth that God saves children. Uh, I'm going to have a cautionary tone about an initial childhood um, profession of faith. 
and how we discern and how we understand that. But I believe that God is saving children sometimes when we're not even sure, have they really been born again? They have been. It'll just appear and be clearer as they grow older. Um, Part of the reason I'm going to have a cautionary tone here is because when you teach, you, you have to exegete really two things. You have to exegete the Scripture, but you have to exegete the audience and the culture as well. You just can't teach blindly without being aware of the culture and how our presuppositions are often influenced by the culture that we're in. And we live in, in Dallas, in the Bible Belt, uh, in a predominantly, um, or not predominantly, a commonly Baptist culture. We're Baptist, by the way. Baptist, when that, that term refers to someone that baptizes, um, usually by immersion, uh, believers. So we're, we're a Baptist church, for sure. And we live in a unique culture that we may not even be aware of, that we're in a culture that is unique today and is somewhat unique historically in that it baptizes children, uh, believing or professing believing children at an elementary age. That's historically unusual. Um, historically, Baptists would wait to baptize someone until they, were near, uh, to, until they were an adult or a near adult upon a profession of faith. And that's even true today in other places. For instance, in England, most Baptists would, their practice would be to baptize the next generation at a much older age than would be common in in this culture right here. So I'm addressing a culture. I think if I was in England, I'd say, get on with it. Let's speed it up here a little bit. Um, And I would want to bring a different application of truth um, to someone who refused to baptize anyone prior to 18. Um, but I'm, I'm not addressing that culture. I'm addressing a culture that surrounds us that has a different, that has a unique and an unusual historical view, um, which doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying that's where we live, and so that's, well, that'll affect some of the cautionary tone you may feel uh, tonight. It's just the context. So the first thing is that God saves children. The second thing, and this is just a very brief review from last week, evangelizing children is a primary responsibility and privilege of parents. And that was from Deuteronomy 6. We looked in some detail at that. Evangelism in the home is a process and not merely an event. Um, That was really a burden for last week, that evangelism not be viewed in our home with our children as a singular event where there is like this unique proclamation, this one-time proclamation of the gospel, and then an effort to close the deal and bring at that point a decision, um, you know, and then with the view that regeneration will result from the decision that the child makes at an early age. I don't think that is the view of the Bible. I think the view of the Bible is we're preaching God at the earliest age to them. We're preaching the gospel when they may not even be able to understand it. And we are walking and talking the gospel. We are sharing it, as we talked about last week, that's maybe some committed times, like a family devotion or something, but we're also talking about God and his deliverance and his work at bedtime, when we rise up, when we walk around. So it's a picture of not a singular, it's, it's not crusade evangelism in the home. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifestyle that is a process. Now, conversion is an event. Regeneration, and regeneration is an event. It's not a process. But I think when someone's raised in the church, typically that event happens after there's been a lot of gospel shared and spoken uh, to them. And God uses the teaching of the gospel to regenerate a person's heart. Think about James 1. We studied this 
uh, last, last year sometime, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth, how? Through the word of truth. It is the teaching, the proclamation, the sharing, the discussion of the word of God that brings new life to a person. Um, or First Peter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So a person is born again through God's word. That is the agent, the means that brings regeneration, which is, means being born again or new life to a person. So when we think about family evangelism, I think we should, again, not be thinking about um, you know, circling everybody up for a crusade one time. But I think we should be thinking about a lifestyle of gospel sharing, gospel proclamation, prayer, uh, and faith towards God that he will use that word to awaken a heart and so that children will respond with faith and repentance. So we also not only be declaring the gospel, but we want to be declaring to them how to respond to the gospel as well, which is faith and repentance that we talked about last week. I think that's the privilege we have um, of raising children is the Deuteronomy 6 idea, that we as a lifestyle are passing on the gospel. That's obviously not the way all evangelism is. If you walk up to someone on the street and meet them, a street evangelism, uh, you're just declaring the gospel to them. You don't have the, a process necessarily of years of relationship. So that's not the only way of the gospel presentation. But in the home, I think we should view evangelism as a, as a process Uh, that God will use. Number three, we do not always know when regeneration occurs, occurs, but after regeneration, God's Spirit begins to change a person's heart. A A regenerate person will demonstrate evidence of regeneration. We don't always know the moment that someone is regenerate. John 3 says, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born who is born of the Spirit. So he's saying the Spirit, you don't know where it comes from, how he's moving, what he is doing, but you hear its sound. You see the effects. The, the, the effects of the Spirit granting new birth are evident. The, the work of new birth is hidden and secret. It's internal, and we don't always know when that takes place. Uh, again, the book I recommended earlier is very helpful on this topic, uh, Finally Alive by John Piper, where he talks quite a bit about the biblical idea, the doctrine of regeneration. Um, and so uh, that's a, probably especially true with children, I think even more so, um, that they often don't and we don't know the exact moment when they are regenerate. Sometimes it's more obvious Uh, for an adult, um, but not always as obvious, not even always that obvious for an adult. I remember reading uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, account of his regeneration, and it was very interesting. He said, you know, he had heard the gospel, been talking about the gospel, been informed of the gospel, but he said he was being driven to a zoo, to visit the zoo, and he said, when I got in the car, whatever, to go to the zoo, I did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. When I arrived at the zoo, I believed Jesus was the Son of God, and I really didn't think about him on the the way. So he had heard plenty of gospel. As he's driving, his heart is regenerated, and he comes to believe what he had previously heard taught to him. He says, I don't know when that happened, don't know exactly how that happened, but I know once I was at the zoo, I believed in Jesus. 
that is a common experience where, especially for children, where we don't always know exactly when regeneration occurs. And so in your notes there, the moment of regeneration is not always clear. Parents are wise to recognize this and to avoid prematurely conferring assurance on a child. I'm thinking of a younger child. Um, The Holy Spirit is the one who grants assurance. Romans 8 says the Spirit of God will, will bear witness with our spirits. It, I think it's a mistake to take an approach which is event-oriented, which is decisional regeneration-oriented, where a young child prays a prayer, and then the parents are bolstering them with an assurance strongly. Uh, and I'll say a little about why, why I think that in a moment. Uh, but I think that's, that, that does damage at some, sometimes to be at a very young age, prematurely taking the first response, the first step towards Christ, the first profession towards Christ, and, and sort of you know, bolstering them with, okay, you are in, let's write the moment in your Bible, let's sign this card, let's put, up, you know, put it in a picture frame and put it up on your wall type of a thing, that this is, uh, actually this is the very moment. The reason is because regeneration will, the reality of regeneration will be manifested in a young person's life. It may not be manifested by simply them making a verbal confession, I believe, I pray to prayer, something like that. But it will be manifest over time. Um, And that's why I just wouldn't recommend, you know, super trying to close the deal, uh, trying to get the prayer prayed, and then trying to stamp assurance on them and say we're done. It's better to continue to be positive towards every response. They may, as well, they may very well be regenerate. Very positive towards every response. Very encouraging, but also saying time will tell. Uh, time will absolutely tell. It will be manifest. The Spirit of God will be manifest in this child's life to see if they really have new life or not uh, as, they, as they grow. So here's the flow of the outline of what I've said so far. God saves children. Parents are primary evangelists, though, as we said last week, family can help, children's ministry teachers can help, friends can help, pastors can help, uh, lots of folks can help. But parents are primary evangelists that communicate the gospel, and as the gospel is regularly communicated to children, God uh, typically saves them through his word. He regenerates their heart, and that is evidenced over time in their lives. Um, I want to switch now and talk a little bit about that, conversion and baptism. A few weeks ago in teaching on baptism, we said that baptism should follow a credible or believable profession of faith. Baptism should follow a believable profession of faith. And here's the reality. Um, It's just not real easy, not impossible, but it is not easy to be certain of a pre-adolescence uh, profession of faith. Now, it doesn't mean, because I started with the exclamation point, God saves children, doesn't mean that a young child's not saved, that a young child's not regenerate. Um, for sure, they may be. What I'm saying is that we should be discerning and assessing an initial profession of faith uh, because children differ from adults in some significant ways that have to be recognized. Not in their savability, they're not different. Not in their sin, they're not different. Uh, Not in the reality that the gospel can save anyone who believes they're not different. But in our ability to understand whether their profession of faith is real, there are differences in young children 
and adults. And this is why this is so important. Um, I, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago communicated just the, the frightening, troubling statistics about how many children uh, or teenagers uh, who profess faith or, you know, ultimately are raised in the church, leave the church as an adult. Somebody emailed me, who's not even in our church, but somebody emailed me a whole, uh, several links that, were, that had studies I wasn't aware of, but just confirmed what, what those kind of numbers that I gave last week. And one of the dangers um, that we as parents have is that we can communicate a false, we, we can support can support a false profession of faith in a child. They may not really be a believer. They may verbally say something, and we can jump on that and celebrate that and call grandma and declare them regenerate and assure them of their spot in heaven very quickly. Um, and that is troubling because when they get older, if they weren't regenerate and there's no spiritual life in them, oftentimes uh, they, f- they think they're okay because of that. They think they're right with God because they don't even remember what happened, but their mom and dad, and it's written in their Bible, and there's a picture, and the whole deal. So they must be okay. And that's not an isolated, strange, anecdotal account. Um, I've met numbers of people like that here in Dallas where, well, yeah, I mean, their life, there's nothing even remotely godly about their life, but they pray to prayer in third grade at vacation Bible school, and they're in. Um, and they're okay. And so we want to be very, very careful about that. And I think of all the potential um, challenging things in in our culture, the one of contributing towards a false assurance of faith is a, uh, that's a significant thing we want to watch out for. And we're trying to teach and help that as kids get older. And in the G2 and the youth ministry, some of you are involved in that, there was a pretty lengthy extended series this year on assurance of faith, which was very good and helped parents and students talk together about this topic. So we want to continue to talk about that with, uh, with the children. Um, in terms of a credible profession of faith and children being different than adults, I made that comment. Here's a few ideas um, that I just took out of uh, Dennis Gunderson's book, Your Child's Profession of Faith. And th- this is part of that cautionary type material. I, I am not arguing for delayed conversion or delayed evangelism. I'm not saying wait till they're old enough or anything like that. I'm not saying they can't be converted young. What, what, what I'm saying is that we need to be realistic about assessing a verbal profession of faith. Here's a few of the ideas that I got from him. One is that children are intellectually immature. That, that, is, not a criti- that is not a moral critique. That is an observation of reality. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, I understand Paul is not communicating about childhood conversion there. I understand that. He's communicating about love is what he's communicating. But the illustration means something. Paul's not using false illustrations. Uh, Paul's not making secondary points that are untrue. he's, He's making the point that children speak and think and reason differently from adults. They speak, think, and reason differently from the the adults. Their thoughts are simple. Uh, They don't often understand what is entailed in commitment. Um, And they, they, they often just don't understand that. And if they do, even communicating that so that in a way that we would know that they understood is often difficult. 
Children may be capable of responding in repentance and faith. Not, not they may be. They are capable of responding in repentance and faith. But they may also be speaking agreeably like a child. Uh, they may be childish and just agreeing with the authority in their life, um, their parents, and not thinking independently. They may be speaking like a child, which is shallow, immature thinking typically that can't under, or, or don't understand. I wouldn't say can't. Don't understand what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ, which is the command to a disciple regardless of age. It's the same command. So usually, as they mature, time will tell if they do understand those things and if whatever commitment they've made is real. In other words, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Again, this is not a passage that's talking about childhood conversion, but he is talking about the way children are. And he's saying children have immature thinking. Don't be like a child with immature thinking. He's not saying children are bad because they can't think. He's not saying that Jesus doesn't love them or welcome them. He's just saying the reality is that they are immature in their thinking, and that may, that, that, that may include shallow judgments in decision-making. Children don't often think beyond a day. So can a young child understand, respond to the gospel in repentance and faith even though they're young and immature in their thinking? Yes. But if they say they had to believe and have responded in faith, do we take that comment at face value at an initial statement at a young age? And I'm arguing here for caution, that we want to be careful, mature, in our thinking, and and want them to be the same, that they have counted uh, the cost, that they understand what they are, um, what it means to them. Um, and so I think there's a very real difference between sort of just looking over the narrative of Acts where there's, in essence, immediate baptism upon profession of faith. I think it would be um, not really considering all that's in Acts to apply that directly, equivalently, to a six-year-old, for instance, to a uh, seven-year-old, to a very young child. I mean, there's a, there's a few issues here. Acts records... No baptisms of second-generation Christians. Acts records no explicit baptisms of younger children. We know that there are some uh, household baptisms. We talked about that a couple weeks ago in a sermon. So we just don't have examples. What we do have is we have examples of people being baptized that clearly uh, understand the cost. If you're a Jew and you're aligning yourself with Christ and being baptized, uh, you... (laughs) You understand, you're not flippantly, mildly, immaturely, you're realizing that there's some cost to you, which would be severe culturally with your family. Uh, You're making a decision that is costly. You would necessarily likely likely count the cost if following Christ means persecution. And even for those, maybe a Gentile that's baptized, well, there's one instance of the Gentiles being baptized, it was obvious, they don't know anything about what's happened, and Peter preaches the gospel, they all start speaking in tongues, not knowing what that is. Okay, that's a pretty good sign. These people didn't even know about it. They say they believe this spiritual gift is poured out upon them as just as it was upon us, he says. Fair enough. That's, that's pretty, pretty realistic. So even those, but even other Gentiles that would be baptized, it might not be equally costly the, to them to follow Christ, but at least they would be adult in their decision-making. Paul couldn't say, don't be like a child and immature in your thinking. Paul wouldn't say, put away childish speech, thinking, and reasoning. He would say, these are adults. Um, so I think there's, there's a difference there 
And I'm not saying it's irrelevant, obviously, that they baptized immediately. I would take a pretty similar approach with an adult. I would think we would take a similar approach with an adult as we read in the book of Acts. Um, Secondly, children change their thinking. Paul makes this point about children. Again, it's not, I understand it's not about childhood conversion, but he's still making a statement about children in Ephesians 4. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, don't be like a child because this is what's characteristic of a child. A child is fickle. A child thinks this today and thinks that tomorrow. That's what he's saying. Don't, we're not to be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried by every wind of a doctrine. What does a child do? A child hears something and believes it. Something else comes along, a child believes that when he's exposed to that. And that's why he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be like a child. What, what is characteristic of a child? They're easily swayed. They're easily swayed. I mean, here's the reality. Um, it wouldn't be difficult to go into the kindergarten class in Sunday school and get every kid in there to raise their hand and pray a prayer and ask Jesus into their heart. It just, that, that wouldn't be difficult. It, it would not be difficult to do that. Um, would they all be regenerated at that moment? No, I don't think so. But children are swayable. Children believe what you tell them. Um, the same boy that wants to be, the same eight-year-old boy that wants to be an astronaut today, he wants to be a major league baseball player tomorrow. Now, he may be an astronaut, he may be a major league baseball player, or he may be something far different. Uh, children think one thing, and then as they mature, they think something else. So the first confession of faith in Christ, it may be completely legitimate. I hope it is, but it may also change. And it usually, if it's not a real commitment to Christ, it usually changes when a child begins to be more independent in their thinking, to have more freedom in their living. Young children live their life in, with, through, attached to their parents. And at some point, they begin to be more independent in their thinking. Usually about middle school, most, most children begin to have more choices, more freedoms. As they get older, they're certainly significantly more in high school, significantly more in college. There's this pathway of independent thinking. And uh, usually, um, as people get older, the kind of meaningful decisions in their life become clear. They could be decisions they made at six. So someone could resolutely believe at age six, and that's just carried through their life. I pray that's for four, five. I pray that's for every kid in the church, praying for that, hoping for that. But often that's not going to be clear that what I said I want to believe today is what I say I want to believe and give my life to tomorrow. Thirdly, children often, not always, but children often don't comprehend the nature of following Christ. A childhood commitment is later tested when children reach an age of more independent thinking and experience. Think about the parable of the sower where Matthew thir- in Matthew 13 where Jesus says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Can can that happen to adults? Absolutely. Could it happen to an adult that professed faith and we baptized them and later it's revealed that it didn't stick? Absolutely. Absolutely that could happen. The difference with children is the things I'm talking about here. 
is the nature of their understanding, the nature of their thinking. And so it's just very common for a child to be excited about the songs, the Bible songs, excited about Sunday school, excited about the stories, excited about Christ, what they understand of Christ, and that is wonderful. But that is tested at some point. That becomes much more tested usually with their peers when it becomes costly. It's not very costly oftentimes in their understanding. But once it becomes costly, then there is often a a reality of is, the, is there a true faith? So did the word really grip the heart and is it going to produce fruit a hundredfold? Or did it fall and there was an immediate response of joy? Yes, I, I want to follow the Lord, that's great. But as soon as there is, what does he say? Persecution or tribulation? As soon as that you know, sort of innocent response to the Lord is tested in any way, they immediately fall away. What's Jesus saying? It was never real to begin with. That's what he's saying. There... You, And so the warning of overly celebrating and overly confident assurance immediately at a very young age is is probably not wise. And I think this passage bears uh, that out. As they get older, oftentimes their attitudes and their pathway veers from a childhood profession. um, And then what's scary is often they presume themselves safe um, because someone told them they were a Christian. You know, that that is a challenging thing when when someone... Uh, for instance, is baptized at a very young age because they don't have a memory of what was going on in their heart, what was their thought process, why did they want to be baptized, how much did they understand of faith, did they understand repentance, did they understand what Christ did for them on the cross, did they understand the nature of their sin. And when they're older, they're unsure about their faith, and all they're left with is, well, mom and dad must have thought I was okay, and I talked to some pastor, and he thought I was okay because I have a picture that I was baptized. So they all thought I was okay, I must have been okay because I cannot realize and remember what kind of decision-making process what went into this. Could they have really been saved? Absolutely. But do they remember? Is there any sense in which they could look back uh, upon their, their faith and, and what that meant to them and what they, their realization of what they were being saved from? So they could be, but time will tell. Number two, Because of the difficulty of assessing a child's profession of faith, it is wise not to rush baptism and communion for a younger child. At what age should a person be baptized then is a question. The scripture does not set an age for baptism. God can regenerate a younger child, but it's usually difficult to discern the credibility of a profession of faith in most children before, say, age 11 or 12, kind of when they're kind of pre-adolescent age, for other kids, maybe later into their adolescent age. Um, For us, we've spent a ton of time talking about this, Rob, Pete, and I, and read a bunch uh, about it. For us, I think what we'd want to communicate is we will meet with anyone who has faith in Christ and is inquiring about baptism. Well, they probably need to talk. I don't think we're going to meet with a two-year-old. But we would meet with anyone who has a profession of faith and seek to serve parents. We'd seek to help and to serve parents in assessing their child's readiness for baptism on a case-by-case basis. In other words, we're not setting an age policy. Um, We felt it would be bad not to say anything about an age and be super vague, but the fact that there's a couple of numbers on your outline doesn't mean that that is a rigid policy that we are setting. It's a general practice 
I think it's a general practice borne out of wisdom and experience. Um, we read pretty significantly, and we read uh, folks who would uh, and know of, we didn't have to read, we're kind of familiar, uh, Rob and I kind of grew up in this environment, but we were familiar with people who would baptize very young on a verbal profession of faith. I believe, okay, what do you believe? Jesus died for my sins. Okay, I was a sinner. Jesus died. That's it. That's all we need. You're in the water at a very, very young age. So we're familiar with that. We also read very respected author um, and his church practices. They don't baptize anyone prior to 18. So we read, you know, we'll baptize you at 5, we'll baptize you at 18. By the way, both of those views, I think, are represented in our church as well. So we're aware of that. So very, very young, wait till you're 18. We've heard people both express that view to us. So I know it's there. And then we read stuff kind of in the middle. We read, uh, and that's where we found a number of places, but we read stuff kind of in the middle. The paper we're providing for you uh, comes down in kind of a middle age, like I'm describing there. So what, it's, what we're not saying is that there's a specific age, but we are recognizing a child's ability to communicate and to express such that you can be confident uh, in their regeneration so that they're not being rebaptized when they're older. That is extremely common. People that are baptized at a very young age, uh, on a profession of faith, very young, and then they're back in the water at 18, 19, 25, and they're saying, well, yeah, I was baptized as a child, but I didn't understand it. It didn't really mean anything to me. My friends were all being baptized. My dad thought it was a good idea, um, and they baptized me. I had no idea. I wasn't saved until I was later. That's a really common adult baptism experience. So we're, we're not shooting for multiple baptisms. We're, we're, we're looking for one and trusting God for that uh, for, for folks. Um, that kind of age range is an age range that we've already recognized in our church. Um, we have people come in this meeting and think and receive and respond independently at about 10, 11, 12, whatever, 6th grade, so 11, I suppose. Uh, we're already doing that. We're, we're recognizing people have some independent thought at that age. So a sixth grader can hear a sermon, apply, a sixth grader can come down here, receive prayer, could pray to receive Christ. Uh, they could respond. They're, they're, they're just in the room like an adult. So we've already sort of realized the ability of someone to take responsibility, to respond and have some responsibility for the kind of decisions that they're making. We could say owning their faith. There's more independent thinking. There's more pushback and challenge to understand what this means. I'm not just believing because my parents do, but I'm believing because I'm counting the cost and what this means uh, to me. Um, so I think as they get older, uh, that, 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 that all becomes uh, much clearer for us to discern their profession. Uh, and it also just sort of becomes more realistic and meaningful uh, for them so that they can look, it means something. They understand they could look back on their baptism. Most of us don't remember anything from ages six and seven or very little. And even if you could remember something like that, you probably wouldn't remember the thought process that led up to it, likely. So that doesn't sway us that you can't remember it. That's not a swaying point. But it's, it's valuable. I think it's valuable. Paul calls the Romans in chapter 6 back to their baptism, so it would sort of be nice to have some memory of that where we, where we can, I think. Um, so we would recommend that upon one's profession of faith that there be with a child some kind of uh, 
credible evidence where you would have some confidence that they have been regenerated. What are the evidences that someone's been regenerated? I don't think they're any different for an adult than a child in, um, in substance. In expression, they're very different, perhaps, because of the mature thinking and, and childish thinking. Adults can communicate more clearly, and they're more mature in their thinking. Um, but here would be some things on your outline to ask. These would be some things that would be evidences of that a child really is born again, is regenerate. Does the child really understand the gospel? And can he clearly, or she, I'm going to use he regularly, but of course I mean he or she, um, can he clearly, though simply, explain it? Does he understand the holiness of God and his own sinfulness? We talked about this in the Deuteronomy 6 passage. Does he understand why Christ died? Does he understand his works in no way save him? Is he trusting Christ alone for salvation? Uh, A helpful question. Here's a helpful question to ask uh, in terms of their understanding of the gospel. Because I don't think, I think understanding of the gospel is necessary for regeneration. It's the word that brings us forth into new life. Here's a question you could say to your child. If one of your friends asked about how to become a Christian, what would you say? What would you say? So if they're saying, well, be good, go to church, you know, um, or just vaguely believe in God or something like that, then that, that's, a, that's a good benchmark as to maybe where they are. If they can fully explain the gospel with some clarity about God's holiness, their sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice, um, and that they understand that they have to believe and turn to Christ in repentance, if they could un- express that in very basic, easy terms, then that's a good sign that at least they have an intellectual understanding of the gospel. An intellectual understanding of the gospel is not a saving understanding of the gospel. Even the demons believe, James writes. But it's a, it's a great start, it's a great, and it's a very important part of it all. But we could also ask, has the child evidenced a conviction of sin? Is there a heart awareness of sin accompanied by a measure of sorrow? Second Corinthians talks about godly grief, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Is there a sorrow towards God for their sin? Is there similarly a joy of forgiveness? So we, we wouldn't be saying that, boy, if they're not just you know, weeping and wailing in like some revival mode over their sin, they're not saved. Of course not. We're not saying that. But there should be an awareness. There should be a godly grief for sin if someone is becoming a Christian or has already become a Christian. Is there evidence of repentance of sin? You know, uh, Peter says, repent and believe on Acts 2 and Acts 2. So if the child has repented and believe, what, what sin has he repented of? That'd be a great question. They say they believed. They believed for a year or two. Can I, or can I just see, would there be any place where repentance would be evident in their life, at least at some level? Uh, has he turned and followed Christ with a genuine commitment? I mean, Christ says, if you don't hate your father and mother, you're not worthy to follow me. He's basically saying that you should love me supremely above all else. That's what God says. That's what Christ says. So is there any evidence of that? Is there any evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in his life? If a person's regenerate, the Holy Spirit will bear uh, evidence that he is present. Romans 8 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if a young child uh, professes faith in Christ, one way as we go down the road and as we're you know, caring for them, continuing to share the gospel with them, encouraging them, praying for them, one way to know if they have been is the Holy Spirit will give evidence that he's present there. 
He, he will just give evidence. I, here's a whole, whole long list of things. Some of them have scripture, scripture verses with them. Some of them don't. They're not going to all be present. They're not going to be present, perhaps, uh, in the same exact way as the guy, as an adult, who got, went from drugs to Jesus instantaneously. It may not look like that. I understand that. But if the Holy Spirit's present, something, we'd have to see some of this kind of stuff. Um, and this is kind of why I'm saying it's good with a younger child to have a little bit of a, little bit of a wait-and-see approach. Is, is it real to them? So one would be, on your outline, awakened and awakened conscience. Is the child sorrowful when he disobeys um, and not just when he got caught for disobeying? So is there some level of sorrow for sin? If that's never apparent, well, that's maybe a concern, um, that there's no conscience, the conscience isn't alive to Jesus Christ. Is there growth in righteousness? This is what 1 John, 1, uh, uh, 1 John 2 says. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this is what John, the first John's a great book to go over with someone who's considering if they are a Christian or not. Um, it's a great book because in there he gives a lot of evidences. And he says that someone's been born again um, if they're practicing righteousness. So is there a growth? Can you see that at some level in some way in their life? Is there love for God? And is there love for other Christians? First John 5 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. So what's a sign that a person's been born of God? They love the Father, and they love others. Another one would be an increased hunger for Scripture. An increased hunger for Scripture. Now, they don't have to voraciously be reading their Bible, and, you know, I just can't get them to do anything because they're always reading their Bible. It doesn't have to be that level to think that a child is saved. That's not that level for probably any of us in the room, you know. But is there some interest in the Word of God? If the Spirit of God resides in a person and has granted them new birth, then after the new birth, they will begin to grow. So you can have know if there's a love for the Scripture or an interest in the Scripture um, that the Spirit may be present. A desire for worship would be one. A desire for worship. Again, I wouldn't base everything on one of these. They may just like the music and dancing around and hitting a tambourine or banging on a little drum or whatever you do for your, if you do some kind of family worship time or something. But it, it might just be they like the music. But it could be that they have a heart for God. A desire for evangelism. That is, one of our kids in particular, at a, I think a, one sign that they had become a Christian was there was a real desire and a real concern for people that didn't know Christ. And this, this kid wanted others to know Christ. It was always trying to uh, even encourage us to reach out towards others. So it doesn't seal the deal, but that's a sign. That's a sign. Another one would be illumination of biblical truth. Can the child hear the Bible or, or, or really read the Bible at some level and there's a perceptiveness that only the Spirit gives. If you became a Christian later in life, then you know what that's like because you could have read the same words before and they were nothing to you, and later you read it and something, a light went on and it made sense for you. Why? Because you were dead in darkness, now you're alive in the light, and the Holy Spirit speaking to you through his God-breathed word. So it doesn't have to be at an adult level, but I think we'd want to see that at somehow present uh, if the Spirit of God is really in a child's um, life. Um, a desire for fellowship, you know, that would want to be around God's people at some level. A love for others. Um, increased obedience. That's kind of like the increased righteousness, but increased obedience. First uh, John 2 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. So is there a desire to obey the Word of God? 
uh, spontaneous thinking about spiritual things. In other words, at some point, there's some thought in, uh, of God independent in their life apart from the Sunday school lesson you're teaching. They have some kind of life that, that reveals this. Uh, Romans 8 says, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So ideas of God, these kind of things appear in their mind. There's an increased fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, um, kindness. And you you know the song, your kids were in the worship camp. They know the song. Um, They may know more about the fruit of the Spirit than we do intellectually, but is there some evidence? So what I'm trying to get at again to repeat is if someone's been born again and they're young and we're not ready to baptize them on their first statement of belief, but we're looking to see if that's real, then one evidence is we can see the Spirit forming in them fruit. And so there is some evidence of growth that they were dead, now they're alive. They were in darkness, now they're in, uh, in light. Um, and the fruit of the Spirit is definitely a way that uh, that manifests. Uh, another one would be a personal desire for baptism and communion. I think if your child is begging to be baptized, I want to start with that's a good thing. Uh, one of our children at a young age wanted to be baptized because one of their friends was being baptized. You know, we found, oh, good, baptized, I'm baptized. Great. Wasn't super young. This, this was a young, wasn't super young. Um, great. Well, there's a baptism coming. We kind of talked about, oh, so-and-so's not getting baptized then? Oh, well, I'm not sure. Okay, well, so-and-so was getting baptized, and that's, a, that's childish thinking. That's understandable. Uh, we didn't baptize the child at that point because so-and-so was getting baptized. That didn't really... Uh, clinch it for us. Uh, love, you know. Why don't you guys just have a play date together and get together? We don't have to get baptized at the same time, necessarily. So you know that. But so there can be wrong reasons. They someone thinks that makes them a Christian. Someone thinks that accelerates them in spiritual. They'll be really godly. They'll have new experiences. They someone else is being baptized. Uh, grandma and grandpa will be proud. Mom and dad will be happy. Uh, there's a lot of bad reasons. Um, but it could be a very good reason. I love Jesus and want to obey his word. That's a good reason to want to be baptized. So that's an evidence of the Spirit. Another one be an inner confirmation that the child is converted. Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Um, an assurance ultimately comes from the Spirit and not from us, and that's a place to be very careful. Uh, one of my children, our children, one of our children... Um, wrestled with issues of conscience um, and really wrestled with, uh, and this has been settled in this child's conscience now, but uh, had really wrestled with, am I Christian and am I not? And so we just kept talking about Jesus, kept pointing to the Savior, and kept, but at the end of the day, the ultimate answer is, am I a Christian? Well, look to Christ and believe, but the Holy Spirit has to tell you that. I can't tell you that. I can't tell anybody else 100% they're a Christian. That's what the Spirit of God reveals to a person. So if a child has that strong inner confirmation, I'm a Christian, uh, that doesn't settle it, but that's, we don't dismiss that either. That's, that's vital. So uh, a few closing comments, and then we'll do some Q&A here. If you think your child is a Christian and he or she desires to be baptized and desires to take communion, then meet with one of us. We'd invite you to please meet with one of the pastors. We'll talk to you personally first. Uh, if you'd like to, we'll just talk with you um, and sort this out a little bit. Um, but we would be happy to 
meet with you and your child and just ask it would be an intimidating thing. We're not, it's not a spotlight. And based on all the cautious tone I kind of gave here, I would not want to give you the wrong impression. We wouldn't put them under a light and say, we'll just see. I mean, it's not that kind of a deal. We would be warm and friendly um, and, and help you however we can. But that's to help you, and that's a great safeguard for your child. And um, it's a hard thing for us. Frankly, if you read the uh, if you read Gunderson's book, he <laughs> you can tell he's a pastor. He's almost pleading that parents listen to someone else and all that. You know, a little bit. It's a hard thing for us um, because we want to hear what you would have to say. We want to hear the evidences of even re- re- referencing some of the stuff stuff we wouldn't know. I mean, we don't know. We don't. We're not with your child, uh, so we don't know. But it, it's hard for us if we have questions sometimes because you know it's th- that can be a hard. What, what do you mean you don't think my kid's saved? What, of course my kids said, I think my kids saved. Who are you? You know, that can be a, but it is a safeguard, and I can communicate that by personal testimony because um, in some context, in the context I grew up in, a lot of young people were baptized young, and I would imagine there'd be a, there would have been a pressure on the pastor to, well, we got to baptize, why not, and why would you be asking questions and all that, but my mom, I shared in a sermon uh, recently that my mom was a Christian, preached the gospel to me, shared with me, and at one point thought I might have become a Christian, but just wasn't sure. And so she took me to meet with the pastor, and I remember being in that meeting. I have a memory, and I don't remember what he asked me or whatever, but the meeting came to a close, and and this guy loved me enough and loved my mom enough to say, I don't think he's ready. I don't think we should baptize him. And, you know, that's a little bit, what do you mean? My mom could have freaked out, but my mom just said, thank you, Lord. We just trust the Lord for this, and we'll just wait and see and continue to share the gospel, and let's see what happens. And two, she did that for two years, and something happened again where I became uh, pressing in in the Lord and, and wanted to be baptized and really felt like I was converted, and we met again. And I remember that meeting, and he sorted things through, asked some questions, and his opinion to my mom was, I think he is ready. I think it would be wonderful for us to baptize him. And I have looked back on that and been very, very grateful that someone objectively came alongside my mom and said, well, here, I think so, you know. So this is subjective, obviously, um, but that was a safeguard for me. Um, I don't think something was... I don't think something was unnecessarily withheld from me. I think something, I was told to wait, and that bore fruit. So now when I look back, I don't have the idea. I have no idea, but somebody thought I was in, so I must have been in. Uh, I, it wouldn't be everybody's testimony. My testimony is somebody thought I was out, so I wasn't in. And then later, I, you know, was. So um, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, so we, but we'd be happy to meet with you, meet with your child. Our experience is that typically it's much easier to discern that at, you know, around middle school ages. I had uh, ministered 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. If your child has made a profession of faith, yet you are unsure about it, continue to encourage him or her towards pursuing the Lord. We want to encourage every move toward Christ. Uh, It may be necessary to delay or wise to delay baptism and communion, but this can be done without squelching their desire to follow Christ. The tone of caution that I have used here, I would not use with my child who is saying they believe in Jesus. 
So I, I don't know if you would know that, but I hope you would know that. I would be saying, that is wonderful. Well, let's continue to follow the Lord, and let's continue to pray and read the Bible and pursue him and think about the gospel, and I want to continue to be talking about this with you. And this decision that you're making and this faith that you're expressing, as you grow, uh, that's even going to become clearer to you and to us. So I, I want to celebrate that. Uh, in a measured way. I mean, I don't want to, again, call the party. We're having everybody over and we're celebrating. And tell them, Timmy, tell them why we're all here. What do you mean you don't know? I would tell, them, you tell them you're saved, you know. We don't want that deal going on with them. But I think there's a place to, uh, to still encourage their faith um, and have them wait. The same is, uh, so wait to receive communion or to be baptized. If your child has been baptized at a young age elsewhere, uh, we, we recognize that. So what I'm saying here tonight doesn't mean, well, whoa, I, my kid's already been baptized down the street. He was seven. Are you telling me that's not valid? No, I'm not telling you that's not valid. We would, we would recognize that. Um, uh, we may have counseled differently, but we would absolutely recognize that. So we're not saying something about if, if, if you have a different... We would say the same thing, time will tell. I would, I would say this, that... Now, as an eight-year-old, a year later, uh, I wouldn't be introducing doubt. I wouldn't be introducing skepticism. But I would, in my mind, say, there is a child, and I do want to have a little bit of a, let's see how this plays out, how the Holy Spirit works in his life as he gets older. So I would say that. But we would would absolutely endorse what you and your conscience and your previous pastor and what, most importantly, was in your child's heart. So we would totally endorse that, welcome that. Um, if your child is eager and you feel to wait, um, that, that can be not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we live in a very, unlike other generations, we live in an extremely child-centric world. That what a child thinks and what a child says and what a child wants must be catered to, especially if it's about God. Um, but it's not such a bad thing. I mean, I can't remember, you know, I, I don't remember those two years I described to you as torturous and miserable and distant from God, and I wasn't blessed, and oh, I, I don't remember a whole lot about those two years to tell you. I'm following Jesus now. I'm thankful for that. But it served me. And uh, so I think what the most important thing is that a child honor their mother and father when they're young. And if they're really regenerate, the Holy Spirit will help them honor their father and mother. And if they continue to make humble, godly, gracious, spirit-inspired appeals, let's meet again. Let's talk some more about this. This is a live topic. Uh, That could be the evidence that really revealed they were ready and how they responded to their parents saying, wait, on the other hand, if they're flying off and that's unfair and they're falling to pieces, there may be an immaturity about their thinking. So the kind of weight thing is, is not a bad deal. I don't, I don't think that harms the kid. They are no less saved. That's what's important. I'm not communicating to them, you're not saved. I'm communicating, that's wonderful that you're wanting to follow Jesus. Let's continue to follow Jesus, and time will prepare you to, uh, to make that public. And uh, let's continue in that. So, but but uh, in my mind, I am watching and evaluating and praying and listening and drawing others' counsel in, perhaps even and uh, thinking that. So that can reveal their, their readiness. Um, lastly, I think I want to say this, that I told you that there's probably folks in our church that are okay with a five-year-old, and there's probably folks in our church that would say, wait till near adulthood or adulthood. We're just not going to all agree on this. I just know. Uh, and you know what? We're, I'm teaching something here right now that we're open to continue to talk about, and uh, a lot of what I'm talking about is wisdom, I think, and not Bible verse. So we may adjust our thinking. 
uh, as time goes. We're open to adjusting our thinking, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm not giving rigid policy here tonight. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this is our best shot at counseling you and helping you as parents, and also as parents, at least with Pete and I, with older kids. My experience is that it's Christian parents with their first child that typically rush it more than uh, with their other children or want to. And that's because I think you can't imagine how it's going to be different when your child develops and matures and grows independent in his or her thinking, how radically different it's going to be. Uh, for them and for your ability to discern whether it's real or not it's going to be very different and uh, so I think oftentimes you can't perceive that because you haven't been there maybe a little bit so some of this is based on uh, where we've been in in our own experience and and seeing what's happened with kids that we have sort of baptized or or, uh, not baptized so it's an issue of love where we'll have to grow together dialogue communicate serve help go back and forth on all this kind of stuff we'll meet with children more than once we'll meet with parents all that kind of stuff. We want to see kids saved. We want to see kids uh, baptized. And uh, we want to see, you know, people follow and know the Lord. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.